I'd like to draw your attention to two verses in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe this is on page 955, if you open up a Bible on a chair around you. In this chapter, Paul is answering a series of questions that this church sent to him in a letter, presumably. They were questions particularly about marriage. Corinth was a secular, Greco-Roman city. There were very few Jews there. And so the church, when it started, though it started, we are told, within the Jewish synagogue, soon brought in a number of people who were not from a background where they were familiar with the Bible and its teachings. And one of the things that the church had to do was to help people become aware of that. And they had a lot of questions in their society about marriage and divorce And I want to read just two verses, verses 10 and 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Before we think about what this means, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you again for the freedom we have to be here. It's our desire that you would give us insight into your word, that you tell us you have given to us for our instruction to guide us through the pilgrimage in this world that we find ourselves, to teach us the things you want us to know. And so we pray that you would open our minds to understand this word that we have read and and, uh, you would, by your spirit, motivate us to want to put into practice the things that we find there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These two verses are the answer to a specific question. The question appears to be, can a man and his wife simply decide to end their marriage because they no longer want to be married? It was common in Roman society for that to be the case. And so these people within the church are asking this question, can two people divorce at will? Can two Christian people or married to each other, simply decide that it has become too difficult and they don't want to be married to each other anymore and to dissolve their marriage. And Paul answers it by citing Jesus' authority. He notes that Jesus himself spoke to this exact same question in the Gospels. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, we're told that some Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him the question, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? That is, is divorce a no-fault experience in which the parties can just decide they don't want to be married any longer. And he says, Jesus answered this question. He clearly spoke to it by saying that marriage was designed by God in the beginning to be a permanent covenant relationship. Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And it describes this holding fast as being holding on to a covenant that's been established between them. And so Jesus' answer, the Apostle Paul notes, is no. They should not simply think that they can divorce and end their marriage uh, by their own choice. To the married, I give this charge. Leave out the parentheses. To the married, I give this command. The wife should not separate from her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, in Matthew 19, of course, as we noted a few weeks ago, Jesus did give an exception. There's a a clause in Matthew 19 where he said, except for immorality. But we have to note that 
Jesus doesn't, or excuse me, Paul doesn't mention that in this passage. And it's probably because he understood, just as the apostles did when Jesus uttered that saying, that he was underlining the, per- the permanency of marriage. The apostles' immediate response to Jesus when he said what he said in Matthew 19 was, whoa, if that's the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, they understood that the permanence of marriage was being underlined. They didn't regard Jesus' words, except for immorality, as like a get-out-of-jail-free card, a loophole in the law. It's simply a statement that if one party in a marriage breaks out of that, establishes a relationship with another person, then they abandon the marriage, and there is no marriage to maintain at that point. So Paul uses Jesus' own example to underline the point that Jesus made. God designed marriage to be a permanent covenant relationship. Now, he himself adds a concession in the verses. He says uh, in parenthesis in verse 11, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And he admits there may be circumstances in which a husband and a wife cannot get along and uh, they cannot live under one roof. The relationship has become too difficult. It's broken down to the point where they need to separate. But even in that situation, the counsel of the Apostle Paul is divorce is not the option. They should separate for the purpose of seeking to bring about a reconciliation. Now, I want to note for you, the Bible is not a rule book. It's not written in such a way as it's just a series of commands that say, do this, don't do that. And this verse, while I've tried to explain clearly what it means in its context, must be understood as Paul's answer to a specific question that's being asked to him. It doesn't take into account everything that married people might face in their marriage. It doesn't answer every question about marriage and divorce. But it it, it is Paul answering this question for two married believers... He's going to move on in the next few words to what about the case of a person who is a Christian or becomes a Christian during a marriage and is married to someone who does not confess the Christian faith. What about that situation? He answers it differently. But he's answering this specific question about the marriage of two believers. And what we have to face is the fact that this idea, this basic idea that uh, marriage is designed to be permanent is what was built into Western civilization for about 1,600 years, 1,500 years. From the time of the fall of the Roman Empire until about 100 years ago, the idea that marriage was designed by God to be permanent made divorce relatively rare and difficult to obtain. To get a divorce before the last century, you had to be able to to prove either adultery or desertion. And few people wanted to go to court and make that kind of case against their spouse. And so divorce was relatively rare. And when it occurred, people often experienced a sense of failure as a result. Most people, it seems, opted to experience even a distant and cold relationship 
rather than seeking to dissolve their marriage. And that's a very hard teaching. In fact, when you stop to think about it, Jesus must have known when he uttered the words, quoting Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He must have known that this would cause pain, holding on to that kind of idea. It's caused a lot of heartache through the centuries. Generations of married couples, I'm sure, endured a lot of disappointment, a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain. In some cases, they might have separated but didn't divorce because they didn't see divorce as an option, but they couldn't get along. In more cases, I imagine, people stayed together and they were unhappy. Undoubtedly, some people wished their spouse would die, but their spouse refused to comply with their desire. (laughs) And eventually, when one of them died, they were too old to really contract another marriage and live much of life. And so this idea of the permanence of marriage undoubtedly has brought a lot of pain into the world. Now, we live at a time where it's been mostly abandoned, and what the Western world has done is we've returned to what the experience was in the Roman Empire before the Christian faith began to have influence in the world. And and that was the divorce was a relatively common thing, and remarriage was very common. There actually is an, an example from the first century from the city of Corinth, a secular example of a writing that cites a woman who was getting married for the 24th time. And she was her spouse's 23rd wife. So, I mean, it was a very common thing. An easy divorce and frequent remarriage is more what we experience today with all of the things that go along with that. Now, I'm not sure that the modern solution really is any better. I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, After all, are the children who today experience sometimes blended homes, half-siblings, step-siblings, a number of parents in different places, are they, in the end, any happier than children in the past who were raised by two unhappy parents? I don't know how to answer that. Do multiple marriages make people happier? When someone today who is married two or three times lies on their deathbed and looks back over their life, do they feel any satisfaction, any more happiness than people did in the 1600s who looked back over one relatively unhappy marriage? I don't know. I'm afraid the answers are beyond my ability, though I have some suspicions about it. But that's not the question I want to ask this morning. The question I want to ask is, why does the Bible take this position? Why does Jesus speak so clearly Why does Paul underline what Jesus says and say the wife should not separate from her husband, the husband should not divorce his wife? What is underlined so clearly by both Jesus and Paul is that believing people should regard their marriage relationship as an unbreakable covenant. That's how it should be viewed. And that's going to cause a lot of pain and a lot of difficulties as people move through life. And knowing that, why does the Bible maintain this perspective so consistently? A perspective that marriage is permanent. And I'm going to suggest that the answer has to do with what we're doing here this morning when we meet together for worship. The answer has to do with the very heart of what the gospel is all about. What we come to think about when we meet together and we sing songs and we look into God's word. What we're going to do when 
We have this table spread for our covenant members who come and they take the bread and the cup and confirm their participation in God's work in this world as it's carried on within a local church. And you see, in one sense, the whole Bible is the story of marriage. It's one grand illustration of marriage, or we might say marriage is an illustration of the whole grand story of the Bible. It appears to me that God, when he created the world, when he placed the first human beings here on this planet, that he designed marriage from the very beginning to illustrate or to point to something bigger than itself, more important than himself. It's as though God said, I will create an experience for men and women, a relationship that is called marriage, and I will create that with a relationship that is fraught with both the greatest exhilaration and the greatest pain that anyone can imagine. And I will do this so that that relationship awakens within them all that I want them to know and experience in relationship with me. All of the longing, all of the pain that I want them to know is found in a relationship with me. And what I'm saying is it's not that after we uh, sinned and, and we were making our way in this world, human beings, that God looked around and he said, is there a human illustration that I could find that would point somehow to what I want them to know? Is there something they're already doing that I can make a connection with? That's not at all it. I'm saying God built this into human life before anything else, before there was sin. In other words... God's relationship with human beings is the reality for which marriage is simply an illustration. Now, it goes one step further. In the story that the Bible unfolds, which I'm saying is is about marriage in one sense, in that story, God himself became a part of the story. It's not that God is viewed from Scripture's perspective as sitting down with us like a father telling us a story. I want to tell you about my love. I want to tell you about what I have done, what I will do in order to restore you to myself. It's that God himself enters into the story. He becomes one of the characters, so to speak, in the story. In fact, the Bible itself tells us a story in which God experiences the exhilaration and the pain. God experiences both the joy and the sorrow. God becomes a leading actor, the leading actor, in the grand story of the Bible, and that's what the gospel is. And marriage points to it. Now, here's what I mean. In the Bible, it describes uh, relationships between people, and there's a word used a few times to refer, just in a general sense, to a legal agreement. It's the word covenant. A covenant on one level is simply an agreement between two equal parties to resolve some dispute. So, for example, you read in Genesis in the early chapters that um, Abraham had a conflict with a ruler in a place where he was living named Abimelech. And in this conflict over a piece of property, they finally resolved their conflict by entering into a covenant with each other. And it's a It's a legal agreement in which they exchange certain gifts, they eat a covenant meal together, and they agree to handle their problem in a specific way. That's what a covenant is. It's a legal agreement between two parties. But the word covenant 
is also used to describe a relationship that is vertical between a human being or a group of human beings and God. And that kind of covenant is different. Although it is still a legal agreement, it's not merely a legal agreement. In this case, it is what theologians call a divine covenant, not just a general covenant. A divine covenant is God himself acting to establish a relationship with human beings. It actually follows, uh, according to recent study, a, a specific pattern that was used in the ancient Near East called a suzerainty vassal treaty, or a treaty a, a between an agreement between a ruler and his subjects. God speaks as the ruler, and he calls people into a specific relationship. He makes promises to them and states his own responsibilities, and he calls them to act in a certain way in relationship to him. Obviously, it's not an agreement between two equal parties. It's agreement between the perfect, living, eternal God and sinful people. So the responsibilities and the privileges have to be viewed in a different way than simply an agreement between two people. And then we read in the Bible not only of general covenants a few times and of divine covenants uh, describing the relationship of God and people, but we're told that marriage is a covenant relationship. Marriage, however, takes characteristics from both a general covenant and from a divine covenant. It's important to understand that. First of all, marriage is like a general covenant in that it is a legal agreement. In our culture, marriage involves a legal piece of paper that notes the agreement between the two parties. It's always been legal in all societies in some form, but it's legal And it's general in the sense that it's two equal parties coming together and making mutual agreement to handle life in a certain way. And the two parties in marriage are equal, according to Scripture. They're equal in two ways. We come together, a man and a woman, equally as image bearers of God. We bear the image of God. Now, a female image bearer and a male image bearer have some different qualities and characteristics, but they are both equal in their nobility, in their abilities that they bring to the relationship, in all the qualities that God has endowed human beings with. That makes them equal partners. But also in the marriage relationship, we bring our liabilities. That is, it is always a relationship between two sinners. Two imperfect people come together with imperfect experiences in their background, with sinful ways of relating to life in various levels. They come together and they agree with each other, and so they bring both their abilities and their liabilities into the relationship. But marriage is more than that. It is a general covenant in the sense of a legal agreement between two equal parties, but it also reflects the divine covenants, we're told. The clearest place where this comes about is in Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is teaching about the way in which a husband and a wife should relate. And he says essentially the husband should seek to relate to his wife the way that Christ relates to and loves the church. The wife should seek to relate to her husband in the way that the church responds to Christ. And so a husband should lovingly guide and nurture his wife caring for as Christ cares for the church. The husband should receive her husband's love and strength with a willingness to be cared for. And so he uses this illustration, love your wife the way Christ loved the church, respond to your husband the way the church is called to respond to Christ. But then he ends with these words, 
This is a profound mystery. What's a mystery? Well, the relationship of a husband and a wife, this is a profound mystery. And, he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage and all the responsibilities involved in it is a reflection of a greater relationship that is between Jesus Christ and his people. The New Testament calls us the church. In other words, the Bible unfolds a story that marriage illustrates. The relationship between God and his people, the relationship between Christ and his church, according to the New Testament. And I wish we could spend the hours that could be fruitfully spent just tracing through the Bible this story that is unfolded of God's relationship with his people. It would be an enriching experience. But I just this morning want to peek at one thread, one key thread that's found in the Old Testament in the prophecy or the prophet Hosea. You might want to pick up a Bible and turn to page 751. Hosea is a relatively short prophet, 14 chapters, with a clear message. There is in chapter 1 an illustration of Hosea's life, and then there's a message from God that is the other 13 chapters based on chapter 1. In chapter 1, God tells Hosea to marry a woman who will become a brazen adulteress. Their first child is born while she is being faithful to her husband, and it appears that the second and the third children are born under suspicion as to what their parentage is. And this is a sordid story in which, obviously, she is not a good person, and Hosea suffers greatly because of this relationship. And then for the rest of the prophecy, beginning in chapter 2, God explains, and doesn't just explain, he expresses his own feelings, saying, this is an illustration of my relationship with Israel. Israel's continued unfaithfulness and chasing after other gods and worshiping them all over the land is an image of what adultery is. He pictures them going after the Baals, which were the uh, fertility gods in Canaan at that time. And they would go and worship Baal up on the mountains in various kinds of ways and offer sacrifices and things like that. And he pictures them in chapter 2 as they come back saying, look what my lover gave to me. Look, this mink coat, this car, whatever it is. And God says, under the covenant, I promise to bless them in every way. All the things that they have, their grain and their wine and everything that's been produced in the land all came from me. But they come back and they say, I got this from my lover. And God expresses his own pain as a husband. What happens with Hosea, God says, is like a woman going off and having multiple relationships with men other than her husband, accepting their gifts and attributing whatever blessings they have to what these other people have done for them. But I just want to note the two key points in the book, and this book is, in one sense, the very heartbeat of the Old Testament. It prepares everything in the Old Testament for what we find fulfilled in the New. Just turn, if you would, to chapter 6. I think it's page 755, chapter 6. There's a point in the middle of the book here, in chapter 6, where Israel, the people of God, under the covenant that God established with them, Israel repents. 
It says in verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And you read those words and you think, finally, finally Israel has listened to him. Finally, the people that he won to himself, they're coming back and they're saying, we want you back in our life. We want to be faithful to you. And you think, finally, their repentance and they'll find forgiveness and blessing from the Lord. But then, you know, God's response. God doesn't hear those words and say, finally, you've come back. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Ephraim's the largest tribe in the north, Judah the largest tribe in the south. He's referring to the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. What shall I do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, what God is saying, that last verse Jesus quotes, and it's very significant. He's saying, you don't need to worry about bringing the sacrifices to me, the ones that I commanded you to bring, if you don't come with the heart of a worshiper. Outward obedience means absolutely nothing if you're not coming out of a sense of reliance on me, love for me, fidelity to me. That's where you have to start. Israel's coming to God like the sorrow of a scared but unrepentant child who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And God sees that their repentance is not real. It's just a fleeting cloud, he says. We all know what it's like to experience the difference between sorrow for doing wrong and sorrow for getting caught. And God sees perfectly that they feel the latter and not the former. And so the story goes on. Like that, that brief interlude of Israel saying, oh, we want God back in our lives. It means nothing. It goes on. And he goes on to describe what he's going to do and the pain that he feels in his relationship with them. Until you get to the last chapter of the book, chapter 14. Page 759, Hosea appears to speak on behalf of the nation and appeal to them. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all our iniquity, accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. That means we will give the sacrifices that you commanded, but we will do it from a heart of faithfulness. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. We won't set up idols on our mantles and pray to them and call them our God any longer. And now God listens. God listens to what they say. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. And God responds with forgiveness, with restoration of relationship. You see, the Old Testament is a story, in one sense, of the failure of a marriage on one side. 
And the amazing thing about the story is that God himself becomes, in the story in the Old Testament, he becomes the jilted husband. He becomes, according to Isaiah, the the neglected wife. With all of the pain that a person would experience from those kinds of things going on in life. And he expresses in Hosea all of the pain and the anger and the sorrow that he feels in that kind of relationship. But the message of the Old Testament is he refuses to break the covenant. They break it over and over again. They rebel and worship false gods and break his heart. He remains faithful and eventually he brings them back. And what Hosea pictured in his life and ministry is what is fulfilled in the New Testament. It's what the New Testament is all about. It is the fulfillment of the story that God himself, through Jesus, in the flesh, pursued his people. And God himself suffers the pain of rejection. He's put on the cross, and in Christ, God absorbs all of the pain and the sorrow because of our rejection and our sin. And on the basis of that, he seeks and he draws and he restores sinful human beings to himself when they come to him through Jesus Christ. So why is there this painful emphasis on marriage in the New Testament, this, this permanence that's underlined? Why does that happen knowing even that in a fallen world not all marriages are going to make it? People will throw in the towel People will fail, and people will be failed in some pretty significant and painful ways by their spouses. Why, however, despite that knowledge, is there an unwillingness for marriage to be viewed as simply a legal agreement between two people that you entered into by choice, and so you can dissolve it by choice in exactly the same way? The Bible doesn't encourage that kind of thinking. It encourages people to think of marriage as a covenant relationship that calls them to painful faithfulness. And the reason is because something is at stake in marriage that is bigger than itself. The very gospel itself is somehow embedded in the marriage relationship so that in a painful marriage, in the most painful of experiences, people experience what God experienced, to be neglected, to be cheated. They experience that in the most joyful experiences of marriage, they taste the closeness and the intimacy that God offers in relationship with himself. Marriage is meant somehow to reflect to us the nature of God and his longings for relationship with his people so that in the painful experiences of seeking to underline what God says, we have evoked inside of us this deep longing to fully taste what it means to be loved, to be restored, to be cleansed. The very gospel itself in which God in his mercy tells us that he took upon himself the pain of our rejection in order to restore us is somehow mysteriously reflected in marriage, both in its best and its worst. It tells us that that relationship which contains so much of our human longings is but an image of the real relationship in which all of the pathos and the pain and the power is truly found. And 
That doesn't make marriage and its problems any easier, but at least it explains to us why, despite the pain, God underlined with such clarity in his word that he designed marriage to be permanent. And that's what makes, when we come to the table, our experience even more powerful because we bring to it all of our human longings that are either met or crushed in marriage. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a hard word, one that's difficult to apply. And yet we want to be moved inside, to understand it, to experience it. We want, despite our failings at times and the ways in which we've been failed by others, we want to not see those as an end in themselves, but as something that you use to draw us to yourself that we might come to you in real faith and repentance. We might come to you and find in you that you are, in fact, all that you have promised us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.